Hi, everyone, and welcome to Spread Thin, a senior care podcast for the sandwich generation. Thank you for joining us today. We are on our fourth episode, and I am having so much fun with this. I'm actually learning (laughs) so much. I thought, you know, oh, I know everything about senior healthcare, but I have been learning a lot and we've been getting a lot of good feedback. So thank you for all of your feedback. I really appreciate it. Um, I am going to post some stuff on our Instagram. So if you don't follow us, it's at spread thin podcast. And I'm going to put up a diagram from our last episode with Jess. She did a great job about going through the differences of inpatient care and then um, the differences between other care that you can receive that's not necessarily a brick and mortar, but can complement other services. We are going to make a diagram so you can screenshot it or save it, and we're going to post it on our Instagram. So be looking for that here in the next uh, few days. I'll make sure to post that. And on today's episode, we actually are going to dive in um, into the hospital setting. It's not something that we've taken on yet. We've been mostly talking about, you know, skilled nursing facilities, hospice, assisted living, more of those services. But today we're going to talk about what happens when you go to the hospital. And we have Dr. Tobias Banks here, who I have um, talked to multiple times. He's actually become a a good friend of ours. And I've heard him talk about different outcomes and situations he's been in the hospital. And I thought he would be amazing to bring on because he does a really nice job of breaking down the hospital talk into something you can understand. Another thing that I think Dr. Banks does amazingly is that he He looks at the medical side of it, but then he also takes the bigger picture and he looks at the family dynamics and he looks at um, the history and goals and kind of does a really nice job of kind of wrapping his arms around the whole picture, not just the medical picture, and then talking to the patient about what is best. So I'm really excited to have him here today and I want to welcome Dr. Banks. So I'm going to call him Tobias throughout, but I wanted to introduce him as Dr. Banks. So welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Of course. So you have a busy day today, and so I appreciate you coming and spending some time with us and sharing all your knowledge. Happy to do it. So um, tell me, how, how did you, I, you're a hospitalist. We're going to talk about that, but how did you become a hospitalist? Tell yeah. me a little bit about your background. Um, I mean, I grew up always wanting to be a doctor. It was like one of those things that if somebody asked me as a child, like, what are you going to do when you grow up? I used to say neurosurgeon. I don't know why. Oh, that's a that's miserable totally job. totally random. That's <laughs> <laughs> you were like firefighter. Yeah. And then I started my healthcare career. Um, when I turned 18, I worked as an ER tech um, oh, wow. in a local emergency room. And I really originally thought I wanted to do emergency medicine. And then um, during my clinical rotations in medical school, mm-hmm. um, I spent... Uh, a couple of months with different um, hospitalists and realized that I liked the complexity of internal medicine better as well as the um, longitudinal care that I got to establish with the patients, Um, even if it is just in the hospital. But um, I I realized it was more what I was interested in. And so that's how I pursued that that pathway. You're right. You were like on a direct path to like... Yeah. That doesn't happen all the time. I know. <laughs> Not a lot of people well, are like that. And I had to like scramble last minute and change a lot of my clinical rotations in order to line up with that career field, but yeah. um, it worked out all for the best. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, what is a hospitalist? Tell yeah. me about 
what that job entails. So um, my my training is actually in internal medicine. Okay. Um, and so hospitalists are either trained in internal medicine or family medicine. Um, usually internists um, do not have to do any extra training to, to work as a hospitalist. Family okay. medicine doctors typically have to do like an extra year of, of training in hospital-based medicine. So you had like a fork in the road and you either could have gone like family doctor or hospitalist. Yeah, like so okay. right, I could do like primary care um, or it. hospitalist <clears throat> or continue my education um, and do a fellowship in one of the subspecialties in medicine, okay. like that cardiology, pulmonology, etc. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time um, in training in the hospital, taking care of hospitalized patients more so than the in the outpatient world. Okay. Um, and so we deal with more of the acute care issues that come up with, with patients. So yeah. I always tell people, I'm like your primary care doctor in the hospital. Um, I handle uh, most of the care that you're receiving and coordinate care with specialists and okay. um, coordinate discharge. And we're sort of like the, the master planners, the quarterback, so to speak, of the team. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> A hospital's position, has that always been around or is that something new that the hospitals have kind of developed? I'd say that we've been around for, our profession has been around for the last like 20 years or so. Okay. Traditionally, what would happen um, is that if a patient needed to be admitted to the hospital, typically their primary care doctor would admit them themselves and then see oh, them wow. and manage them in the hospital. The demands of inpatient medicine, though, have become more rigorous, and it really has become a full-time dedicated job. Yeah, and, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes the knowledge base of like how we manage something in the community versus how we manage something in the hospital are very different. Um, and, and so it just became sort of its own field from there, and, and the demand on, from the hospital to um, get patients out sooner um, and safely it really sort of developed our profession and, and made it grow. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Think about like, a, think about my PCP, if I went to the hospital, trying to then, you know, see patients, but then also deal with me in the hospital would be crazy. Right. And like, typically, they would, you know, see patients all morning in their office, and then go around in the evening in the hospital when discharge planning needs to happen, and they weren't able to communicate with them. Um, and so it just be it's, it's very, very complicated to, to try to manage right. both. I could see that. So how many hospitalists, like when you are working, you're yeah. on, are you, do you, do you see every patient or do you have like multiple hospitalists yeah. at the hospital at the time? How's that work? We, depending on the size of the hospital that we're covering, we may have anywhere from three to um, 10 different doctors that are rounding and seeing patients oh, okay. on, on any day, daily basis. We try to average about um, 18 is probably like the, the maximum number of patients that we feel comfortable seeing, but okay. we can flex upwards of, you know, into the yeah. 20s, but it just becomes more complicated to, to try to manage that many people. Yeah, and I guess it kind of depends on what, what your caseload is. Some people are probably really easy. Some people are a little bit more complex. Exactly. Kind of like the nursing home. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, we have everything from ICU patients who are on ventilators to um, patients who are just getting like an easy chest pain workup and getting a stress test and going home the same day or well, something like that. I'm pretty easy. That's easy. <laughs> so if a patient is admitted to the hospital, are they automatically under your care? Like it becomes your patient. Yeah. So it, it, most of the time, if they're coming in for a medical reason, say it's um, heart failure or uncontrolled diabetes or something like that, they're almost always yeah. admitted to a hospitalist. Mm -hmm. If they come in for a primary surgical issue, like they have a bowel obstruction that needs operation, oh, then typically okay. the surgeon would, would admit them. But if they have complicated medical conditions that need to be managed by somebody who understands it a little bit better than the surgeon does, right. then they would like bring us on to help deal with that. Okay. So you almost all patients in the hospital are going to interact with a hospitalist at some point, at unless point. you have no medical conditions at all. 
So are you the one that then signs off? I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. But are you the one that signs off on all the discharge stuff? Like so, yeah. it's under your pay. It's a yeah. lot of times, yeah. And so and we're coordinating care with their with their primary care doctor. So for instance, if we need to establish home health for the patient, then we may sign the initial order, but then the primary care doctor is going to continue to follow those orders after the patient leaves the hospital. Okay. So our, our I response. Talk more about okay, that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our, so we manage everything in the hospital, and then and definitely plan for the disposition part of it as for well. For afterwards. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what is your? Somebody comes into the hospital. It's not you know a scheduled surgery. It's sure. you know like you said an acute issue. They come in. What is your goal? Is it to like figure it out? Is it to just keep them? Yeah. Like, what is your ultimate goal? So, I mean, usually we start with a problem presented to us by the ER doctor who evaluates the patient and says, listen, I think this is what's going on. And then we go down, assess the patient and and determine, yes, this is, you know, we think that they have pneumonia. And so um, my goal in the hospital might be I need to treat them with antibiotics, make sure that their fever is gone, get them off of oxygen, um, prepare them to get them to the point where they can return back home. Okay, so you work with the ER doc because everybody goes through the ER. Correct. So we could kind of look at the ER as like a a pass through. Like you're kind of taking a test. Like, yeah. Are you going to go home or are you going to be admitted? Right. Like, it's the triage have... process. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> tri- that makes tri- sense. Tri- right. <laughs> Triaging is like determining, you know, are yeah. you capable of going home or do you actually need to be monitored in the, in the hospital setting? So you get a call from the ER team and yep. says like, hey, I have a patient here. Not so sure that they can go home. I can send them home. Will you come down to evaluate? Correct. So you come down and they you evaluate and you're like, yep. And these are, you kind of come up with a care plan. Correct. Yeah. Then. We write all the orders. We determine their diet, everything from the diet to how often their vital signs are going to be checked to the fluids you might receive. Interesting. To all the medication, all their home medications that need to be continued. That's, we all, we make all of those decisions. I mean, comparing yourself to like a PCP, you like basically, you're right. You take that, but you like put it into 24 hours worth. <laughs> yeah. And, and sometimes that's the challenge is, you know, a lot of people come to us with complicated medical histories and sometimes I don't even have records, especially if they're coming from like another health system or they right. just relocated to the area. So a lot of it's like just learning about the patient. You know, what what has your, been your history with this condition? How has it been managed? How yeah. do we need to work on it now? And, and what do we do to make it better moving forward? Wow. <laughs> I mean, that you're like under, I can just like see like a stopwatch starting. Like, <laughs> like you come down and then you're like, stopwatch, let's go. Yeah, like, yeah. And it's funny, I'll even bring up, sometimes if, if we do have records from patients, I'll say, oh, you know, I saw that you were in the hospital for this a couple of years ago. And they're like, wow, you knew that in my chart? And I'm like, yeah, I reviewed your chart so I knew what was going on. I think yeah. that makes me the better doctor to be able to make the right decision for that patient. Yeah. So... Okay, so we have your main goal. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the senior population now. What do you think, and just like off the top of your head, I know you don't have any of the data in front of you, but what do you think is one of the main reasons that seniors end up in the hospital? Um, we see a lot of patients coming in with confusion, altered mental status at home, um, and and there's a myriad of reasons why that, that could could be happening. Yeah. Um, but I would say that that's one of the most common presentations that we see coming in. You know, somebody will say like, mom's been acting different. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, this, she's done this before. We often hear they'll say like, oh, when she had a UTI in the past. I was just going to say UTI automatically. Yeah. Comes to mind. And, and that's one of the frequent things we'll hear um, from families when in fact, UTI is like a really uncommon reason for that. It's really? usually the downstream consequences of having the UTI. 
So Wait, tell me more about okay. that. I'm interested in Right. Because I'm always like, is it a UTI? Is it a UTI? Sure. So usually what happens is people can develop a condition called delirium associated with acute infections. Okay. Um, it's essentially their brain's chemistry is sort of backfiring and not really understanding what's happening. And there's something else that's off, whether it's, you know, uh, an infection, um, abnormal electrolytes or something along those lines that's altering okay. the way that their brain functions. And so it's typically like for a UTI, for instance, it's not the UTI itself that's causing the problem. It might be that the patient becomes severely dehydrated or they have a really high fever and it's causing them to act differently from, from normal. And so our goal usually when they're coming in in those types of situations is trying to parse out like have, you know, if, if they have a urinalysis that looks concerning for a UTI, we hear yeah. that all the time. Uh-huh. Like, well, did she actually have, you know, burning when she was peeing? Was there complaints of increased frequency? Like trying to understand were there actual symptoms to correlate with that? Or I do, do I need to look for something else as to why this is happening? Got it. So you guys go even deep. You go like root cause sort oh, yeah. of stuff. Deep dive. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you like this. Because yeah. you like to like figure it all out. Problem solving it's like at a, its best. a puzzle that yeah. you like to put together. <laughs> Okay, so what's another one? Um, I could see that one being like what ninety percent or something. Yeah, it's, like it's, that's it's so an overwhelming common. largely large part of, of what we see in older patients. Um, we see a lot of cardiac conditions. Heart failure is a really common admission oh, that okay. we see. Um, COPD um, yeah. as well, exacerbations associated with that. Um, strokes, lots and lots of stroke workups. Oh, wow. Wait, you yeah. said workups. So, okay, yeah. So if somebody comes in and they say, I have um, numbness and tingling in my right arm or something like that. And yeah. it's concerning that there may be either a stroke happening or a TIA, which is a quote-unquote mini yeah. stroke. I we mean, hear about those all the time. My grandma, we would always be like, I think she had you know, a mini stroke. Yeah. She was like a little off. But like we never really knew. Yeah. So we would order like... The, the, the ER does the initial workup, gets the first CAT scan of the head, and then we would order the follow-up MRI and the rest of the workup that the neurology team requires in order to manage if there is actually a stroke going on. Um, yeah. and, and how do we, and really when it comes to stroke, it's about prevention in the future. It's, it's identifying mm-hmm. the risk factors that are there and modifying those so we prevent any further risk of stroke in the future. Got it. Okay. Will you talk a little bit about what a TIA is? Yeah. So a TIA is a transient ischemic attack. Okay. Or, I never knew that. Yeah, <laughs> mini stroke for short. Okay. Essentially, what happens or what the theory is is that you have a it's either a small blood clot um, or a piece of plaque which ruptures from the the um, arteries due to to hardening of the arteries over as we age, mm-hmm. um, and it causes temporary lack of blood flow to a certain part of the brain and elicits neurologic symptoms. Okay. So so the, again that numbness, tingling in the arm, or my arm wasn't moving. And then typically that resolves within 24 hours if it's a TIA. So either that clot oh, without, or the, like any... without any intervention, correct. Okay. So that clot or that piece of plaque may dissolve or shift or, or collateral blood flow will kick in and that area of the brain is preserved. Mm-hmm. But they definitely had symptoms that were concerning for that. And so that's when we're looking for um, risk factors that might lead to future strokes. And, and so, okay. and the, inc- and the chance of having a stroke after a TIA increases dramatically within the first seven days. And okay. so that's usually why we want those people in the hospital to monitor and see if we can identify what's happening right. to, to try to mitigate that in the future. Okay. I could sit here all day and just pick your brain about <laughs> these things. I feel like I've thrown out, you know, oh, UTI, but I'm like, you, know, you never like do a deep dive into like what it is. So yeah. this is so interesting. 
And just like PCPs were a little <laughs> bit of jack of all trades, I told you people, yeah. I'm like, I handle everything from head to toe, infections, sometimes broken hips, they get admitted to us yeah. and we get the orthopedic team involved just because, you know, an older patient with a broken hip is a complicated discharge because yeah. we have to look at their medications, what happened, what caused the fall, do we need to send them to a rehab center or something like that? Yeah. And that's a lot more to coordinate than what the orthopedic surgeons are capable of sometimes. Right. Yeah, it's so true. They like kind of get in, do their thing, right. get out, kind of yeah. like the anesthesiologist does their thing and gets out. So I'm glad you brought up discharge because I wanted to talk with that. How involved are you in a discharge of a patient from hospital to whatever setting? Yeah, we start planning discharge from day one on admission okay. um, when, when the patient comes into the hospital and that's primarily our responsibility. We're coordinating a lot with our support team. So mm -hmm. we have physical therapy, occupational therapy, social work, case management, dietitians, um, all of our consultants, we're, we're determining what the best discharge plan for that patient is. Okay. And ultimately it's our decision, like where the patient should go with the advice of those people at play. So physical yeah. therapy may do an assessment and say, listen, I think that they need skilled nursing facility, um, for rehab yeah. purposes. And so we're discussing with the families and the patient as to, you know, is that where you really want to go? What's our goals for, for mobility in that mm -hmm. situation? Um, and giving them the best advice that we can in terms of, of planning for that discharge. Okay. And, and even though the discharge might be three or four days away, we really want to start talking about that early because the discharge process can be complicated and takes oh, a yeah. while to plan. Yeah, I want to talk more about yeah. that <laughs> because you're so right. And there's so many different options for, you know, like you said, you guys all sit around and not sit around, but you guys get together and you talk about this patient. And then, but then they, the patient or the family might be like, oh no, that's not what we're doing here. Right. We want to do this. And you're like, hold up. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to go back to the patient's PCP real quick. Yeah. What is your relationship? So like upon discharge, do you send stuff to the PCP? Like what if you change meds or orders or all of that? Like yeah. how does that whole... How does that all come together? Yeah, this is definitely probably one of the most crucial things that we do, the transition of care okay. um, between it and settings because it's a really vulnerable time for the patient. Mm -hmm. um, and so we want to make sure that that happens correctly. So what we're creating, um, we every, for every patient leaving the hospital, we write a discharge summary. It basically summarizes what happened in the hospital, what we did, what we changed. Um, in, in pure medical jargon, because yeah. it's a communication tool between us and the primary care doctor. Mm -hmm. Once we sign off on that, that immediately goes to the primary care doctor um, okay. for them to review. And then we encourage rapid follow-up from the hospital setting, usually within a couple of weeks. We want somebody to, to, to follow up on, on what happened and make sure that they're yeah. doing okay. Sometimes we're ordering lab tests, you know, if we want to have repeat labs in like a week or so, and like, I need you to follow up on these lab results. So yes. I'm communicating See if your that. levels are different or right. if something happened. If it's really complicated, <laughs> sometimes I'm picking up the phone and actually calling the primary care doctor and saying, I need you to follow up on these things because they're really high risk for bouncing back to us in the hospital and oh, we want, to, want them to be successful going home. And so sometimes it requires a little bit more detailed communication mm -hmm. in addition to what we're already sending. Yeah. Interesting. So I guess I... I just kind of figured like you guys didn't talk that much, no. but you no. do, you talk a yeah. lot. Yeah, we're not always directly <laughs> communicating and it, it's, a, it, people will say like, oh, do you know my primary doctor? And I'll like, well, I know the name. I don't yeah. really know them personally, <laughs> but we, you know, if I pick up the phone and call anybody's office and say, hi, I'm Dr. Banks from the office, from the hospital, and I need to talk to you about this patient's discharge, they're hands down willing to talk yeah, to you, anybody. You need a direct <laughs> line. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, that just reminded me of another question. Do you change meds? Like, is that a thing where you're like, uh, you tell the PCP, like, 
I see that this patient's on this, this, and this. Do you think we could do this? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it depends on um, what's going on with the patient in the hospital. For instance, if I think a medication contributed to an acute problem that led to them hospitalized, we may stop a medication permanently um, or hold a medication, change doses, things like that. And that's part of what we communicate with the, the primary doctor. We have a, a discharge med list that has all of the medications oh, okay. we are, are discharging the patient on. Mm -hmm. And it clearly outlines like this was changed, this was stopped. Um, and then we try to put in reasoning in our notes about like why we're doing that. Yeah. Okay. Actually, it's a quick story and then we'll take a quick break. But yeah. I had a family call me and their mom was struggling. She was going in and out of the hospital. And I think I may have told you, but I was like, you need, next time she goes to the hospital, you need her to be sent to Dublin <laughs> and you need to ask for Dr. Banks. Because this lady, it was a um, daughter-in-law. She was like, I just feel like mom's on all this medication. And, you know, she has a, um, like a, she was seeing a psychologist and then she was seeing her PCP and then she had another person and she was like, I just need someone to like, look at all this from like a bird's eye view. And I yeah. was like, go see Dr. Banks <laughs> and request him at the hospital yeah. because he can look at all of that. I would say one of the most common things that we see happen to older patients is polypharmacy. So on multiple medications and, and what happens in this, it's easy to, to do people, in the outpatient world, like I'm seeing my cardiologist for this, I'm seeing yes. my psychiatrist for this, I'm seeing my dermatologist for that, like, and everybody's exactly. sort of siloed. And really the, the job of the primary care doctor is to try to coordinate all of that care. But a lot of times that communication is not as Yeah, well, they haven't been be. there for two years. Correct. You know, like they're just not that great at going to see their PCP. Yeah. And so sometimes we see them come into the hospital and we're like, wow, there's a lot of medication interactions here that weren't necessarily picked up by their, their pharmacy even. Yeah. Or we think that, you know, like they're having like increased falls. What are the medications on the list that might be contributing to that? Yeah. Um, and so we do a lot of de-prescribing in the hospital. And, and some of our um, bigger hospitals actually have geriatrics um, consultants where they're, they're oh. physicians that specialize in geriatric care. And that is one of, if you talk to any of them, they love to stop medications on older patients. I because believe it. And sometimes too, what we see is that like somebody would be started on a medication when they're 70 and they'll land with me in the hospital when they're 90. Yeah. Well, lowering your cholesterol is a 10 to 20 year game. Not, and, and a 90 year old may <laughs> yeah. not have 10 to 20 years left. And so if I right. think that that's causing problems for the patient, then it's, we have, edu you know, informed discussions with the families and saying like, we probably should just get rid of these medications because the benefit's no longer there. Right. That's so true. Yeah. But and it could have like 10 side effects. Absolutely. And it's like those side effects are actually what's going to hurt you more than yeah. what this is. And we often, we'll sometimes see patients that are on medications to treat side effects of other medications. Oh, I bet. And so you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. It's like, like let's, a tangled web. We got to go back to the drawing board for some oh. of this. I remember we had a patient when we had the adult care facilities that... We were, we were just talking to our hospice doctor. We were like, what do you think would happen if like all of these meds were just peeled back? Because all these meds seem to be making it worse. Like, what if we just got her back to baseline? She might actually be better. Yeah. And she was like, you might be right. Like, that's something to look at. Yeah, we often meds see are... that. And and some medications you can't just stop, right? Yeah. You have to like, they have to be weaned off slowly. There's a taper plan in place. Um, and, and those are more complicated situations, um, yeah. especially when it comes to medications that affect brain chemistry, right? You yeah. can't, you can't just stop somebody's nerve pain medication right, right away that they're going to go through withdrawals potentially and have more complications, yeah. but you, you know, you can work on dose reduction and trying to peel things back. And, and we have a lot of com similar conversations with families. They're like, 
mom's just on so much of this medicine and you're like, yeah. okay, well let's actually go through and see what is continuing to be beneficial versus what's not. Uh huh. Okay, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back. Do you know someone that's needing more help? Options Home Services could be your answer. They are a one-on-one -on -one private duty home care. They can help seniors live as independent as possible by helping them from anywhere from one hour in a day to 24 hours in a day. All their caregivers and nurses are drug tested and background checked. Hard to believe, but not all home cares do that. So always ask when interviewing a home care. Their team can provide care during the day or night and help you feel at peace when mom or dad would otherwise be alone. They will help you with personal care, companionship, light housekeeping, anything that has to go with activities of daily living or personal care. Their team is trained to take care of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and then general aging. They can help at home, in an assisted living, a rehab facility, or hospital. Call today for a free consultation to set up services. It's never too early to start that conversation and relationship. It is a private pay service. However, most long-term care insurance policies will cover. Call 614-947-8888 to get more information in their service area. All right, we are back with Tobias here. I am learning so much. <laughs> I could literally just sit here all day, like I said, and pick your brain. Here I thought I knew like all these things. And I told Tobias at our break, you use the word de-prescribe. I love that. I love that you guys do that. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And I think it's super helpful for patients too. I mean, I, it, to just have sometimes an outside perspective, look at the medications. Yes. And, and it's really, I mean, I, I would encourage if anybody is, is worried about polypharmacy with their families. Yeah. You know, is that taking, what you call it? Polypharmacy? Yeah. Okay. yeah. You have like a ton of medications on board. I mean, it, it, I would say if you have more, if you're taking more than five to six prescription medications, you're in the realm of polypharmacy. Really? Absolutely. Okay. And so you were going to suggest, what do you, so what does a family do? Bringing that list of medications into your primary care doctor's office appointment and saying like, it seems like mom is really on a lot. Like, do we need to, or, you know, g yeah. getting that sort of bird's eye overview of, do we really need to be on all these medications? Because that's something that I think most primary care doctors are willing to do. Yeah. Um, and it requires sometimes communication with other specialists to talk about, you know, what that medicine's for and, and really putting that ball back in the, the primary doctor's court to make sure that the patient's actually taken care of appropriately instead of right. getting siloed into all these specialties. So just take that med list and say like, hey, will you review this and talk to these specialists, make sure these are all still appropriate for mom. Yes. And, and I, I cannot <clears throat> promote enough having a comprehensive medication list is so, so, so important for patients. I was just going to ask, what can families do? <laughs> What when someone goes in the hospital? So that is the number one thing because really? we, we can look up um, prescribed information. So we can we can access pharmacy records to okay. see what medications are being prescribed. But yeah. essentially, what a pharmacy technician goes in the room and does mm -hmm. go through all those medications with the family or the patient, and they'll say, "Are you on this medicine?" And they're like, "Yes." Well, that's relying really heavily on their memory of that. Yes. And what if they're confused and they don't actually know? Right. So that happens all the time. The best, the best thing that people can do is to keep a comprehensive medication list on hand. Um, and I've seen patients put it in their wallets. I've seen, you know, like multiple family members will carry a copy of it just so that okay. way we know because that's probably one of the most crucial things that we deal with in the hospital is, especially. I've had complications for patients where a medication was not disclosed that they were on oh, and wow. they had precipitated withdrawal or side effects because they weren't receiving that medication in the hospital. Oh. 
And it's something that we didn't know about because, right. you know, the, the medication list was incomplete or the family right. couldn't recall. So, so it's really scary. <laughs> we should, you should always have a list of the name, the dose, the dose, and how many times a day. Correct. And that would be for over the counter, yep. prescribed, and then like supplements, vitamins, anything, stuff, anything, anything, anything you're, you're taking, in. anything you're putting in your mouth that, that has a dose attached to it or frequency, yeah. you should probably let us know about it. You should probably <laughs> let us know. Okay. So keep a comprehensive list, like every quarter update that and yeah. make sure you have that or the patient has that and then somebody else that's in charge of them. The best, sometimes even better than that, I see people keep their own medical records uh -huh. before and they'll bring in, they'll say like, okay, in 2012 that they changed this medication because I was having this side effect. Well, that's really helpful for me yeah. to know like, oh, well maybe we shouldn't, you know, if, we're, if we have to adjust that medicine again, potentially I need to use a different option. How does somebody have all their medical records? A lot of times people are a little bit neurotic about keeping track of it all. Okay. Uh, that would be me. So yeah. I'm kind of wondering how I go about that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's, and it's easy to forget what's been done in the past. Yes. Especially if you have a really complicated medical history and, and for us to be, you know, if, if you're not a great historian and, and having that written down is really, really helpful. Just yeah. Think about that stopwatch going and you're like, oh, great. I just got to skip ahead. Exactly. Because you just got all this information. Yeah. And sometimes we'll ask questions and be like, oh, I had this procedure done at this hospital and so then we're we're trying to scramble to get medical records sometimes which it, yeah. it's fine I mean that's we're, we're happy to do that but if you have that information easily on hand especially with the more complicated the medical history the more comprehensive yeah. information you can give us the better <laughs> well I feel like if you saw that these labs were already ordered you'd be like okay I'm not gonna order those now I'm gonna go to this step or whatever Correct. it is yeah it's, sometimes it's like Probably. knowing what your baseline labs might look like if I right. don't have those records, right? If you come in and your kidney function is off and I don't know if that because you have chronic kidney disease or is that an acute problem if I don't mm -hmm. have lab records. I'm not saying everybody needs to have labs yeah. available. Like the more information you can get your hands on and keep, Absolutely. the better. Yeah. So they can like literally hand you that folder and be like, go through this. This yeah. is what dad's been going through the last you know, year. Yeah. I think another thing that's really helpful is if families have access to like patient portals for mm -hmm. medical records. So for instance, at Ohio Health, we use Epic, yeah, um, which is a really mm -hmm. large um, uh, electronic medical record that is used by a lot of hospitals around the, the country. We can, through like a backdoor system, see into other hospitals that use Epic, um, depending on how they have it set up. Mm -hmm. It's a little challenging to navigate, but we can often see record. But what I found really helpful is that if, you know, say some mom is visiting from you know, Miami or something like that. And they're yeah. like, oh, well, I have the login for her patient portal and I can actually like pull up and see the labs um, from the oh, patient view, yeah. but it's still really helpful for me to have like baseline knowledge. So I think it's, if you have an elderly like family member that you should, if, if you're access. in charge of their, like their healthcare power of attorney or something like that, if you can have access to their patient side of the, the medical record, plus you're going to yeah. use that to communicate with their doctors a lot of times so too. So true. That's a good point. I'm going to get access from my grandma. <laughs> I just need anything. Yeah. And most older patients are not usually te that tech savvy enough to like be able to, they could have the app on their phone, but they have no clue right. how to use it or log in or create anything like that. So they're, usually yeah. they're relying on their kids to have that information. Yeah. I feel like almost every large PCP now, I'm generalizing, but they have some sort of system yep. that they're using an online portal. Absolutely. That's a smart, that's a good idea. 
Okay, everybody should go do that do today. That. Do that today. It's yeah. helpful. I guess rather than I was trying to, you know, picture myself carrying in this Manila folder, <laughs> and I could see myself giving a login more than I could probably see myself bringing that in. Right. So, do you find when patients come in, specifically older adults, that they have a plan in place, or is it just like we are kind of shooting from the hip? Yeah. I'm sure family would, dynamics enter into your world as well. Oh, so much. And I would say overwhelmingly people have no plans at yeah. all. I, I would, like, if we're talking about, you know, um, <clears throat> mom who, her husband died two years ago. She's been living alone in this ranch home that's, you know, way too large for her to take care of. And, mm -hmm. you know, we even though we pop in every day to see her, she fell, broke her hip, and wasn't able to get up, and I didn't find her for 24 hours, right? Yeah. I've heard that story, I can't tell you how many times, play out. It's so crazy. It, it's terrifying. It is. Um, and, and so, you know, preparing for what happens next is always really important for families. And I think it's it's important to talk to your parents. You know, the, the generation of elderly patients that we see now grew up in a time where we didn't talk about what happens if... Yes. Right. It's so it's very much like we, you know, deal with our health problems as they come up, but there's no planning ahead for, you know, what if I can't actually take care of myself, mm -hmm. right? And what does that look like? Right. And and so sometimes when we're in the hospital and I'm saying, you know, I don't think that they're safe to go home alone anymore. What's our backup plan? We're having to start from ground zero to talk about what that looks like with those families. So you're like potentially the first one to introduce like home health nursing home, assisted living, Correct. hospice. Right. And All you're like, that. okay, I'm going to come in the room and yeah. talk to you about these options. <laughs> and and sometimes it's really shocking for some families. Yeah, They're like, I, I had no idea that this was a problem or we never even thought that that could be a possibility. And, mm -hmm. and you know, sometimes we have to be the bearers of this is the harsh reality that you're going to have to face now, unfortunately. Right. And, and how do we manage that moving forward? So how do you go about that? <laughs> <laughs> um... You, you know, I, I think sometimes if we see like patterns developing, um, we'll, we often will get like return patients in the hospital. I was going to say, do you see patients? Are you like, oh, Sally, yep. I saw you four weeks ago. Exactly. You do. Yes, we absolutely wow. see that happen. And and we start to see <laughs> patterns develop or we get a history from the family that, oh, they've been in and out of the hospital like five times in the past year. Mm -hmm. And And we start looking at like what their home support looks like. I often ask like, do you live alone? How do you get around? Yeah. These are the, some of the same questions that the social workers and the therapists, the physical therapy team is going to ask, yeah. but it's also helpful for me to know. Um, and if we're seeing certain patterns develop that like medications weren't administered correctly or they're missing doses or the bottles were completely full and they never took any of them, yeah. things like that. Those are like the most common times that we see those we issues see start arising. Time. Or like, it's supposed to be taken in the morning, it's taken at night, and then again in the morning. And it's like, right. oh, crap. Okay, so now there's like two doses in you. and Yeah. You know, it's so, just... So sometimes it's like, <clears throat> have we considered getting a pillbox at home? Yeah. And who is going to fill the pillbox? And who's going to monitor to make sure that the medication was checked or right. taken, right? And so sometimes it's like really basic stuff like that. Yeah. But other times it's like, you know, mom was found sitting in her own stool and urine and it's clearly not capable of taking care of herself. And so what right. are we going to do from here? Um, and, that, yeah, and those are harder like, conversations. Start looking at like uh, brick and mortar, like an inpatient, like Correct. maybe not going home necessarily. Yeah. We yeah. also will sometimes see families bring, you know, someone in and they'll say like, oh, their memory's getting really bad or we found them 
wandering off um, yeah. and, and in an unsafe environment. And they look to us to, to talk about long-term placement. Oh, wow. Which is a, a really complicated order and, and, yeah. and something that is challenging for us to accomplish in the hospital setting because it requires yeah. a lot more planning than just finding a facility. Right. Like, you need to know, like, funds. Correct. Like, are you private pay? Do you have insurance? You know, like... Right. All the things. And, and it's often really shocking and devastating to families to learn that there was no planning in place. Yeah. And now I have to do something and the, the financial burden of what that looks like is, you know, insurmountable sometimes for right. them. And, and so, um, you know, sometimes it's just starting with, okay, well, let's see what we can do for maybe rehab placement and what function we can regain. And that may direct us and you all keep planning in the background for what if this isn't successful and how do we do long-term Yeah, you can like buy that. yourself a little time. Correct. Do, we call it like kind of like a step down from the hospital, like go to the rehab, get stronger, let's reevaluate, right. but like keep running here behind the scenes, like yeah. a duck underwater. Let's just keep figuring that out. Exactly. Sometimes our social work team is, is like from day one talking to them about what options they have in the area trying to get cost information to families, giving them lists of resources and, and places to call. And um, it, it's a lot of work for the family because it, they have yeah. to make a lot of decisions in, in a relatively short amount of time because we, you know, I can only keep them in the hospital for so long. Once the medical right. issue is resolved, then I have to figure out a disposition plan to get what, them home. Speaking of that, what is your average length of stay for just... Um, I would say probably three to... Um, five days roughly in the hospital for, for most acute illnesses. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, it can be as low as just a few hours in the hospital to months. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you're right. Three to five days for, to like completely like, oh, mom can't go home. We need to find X, Y, and Z. Correct. That's, that's a lot of rushing around. It is a lot of rushing around, yeah. especially when, you know, if, if for instance, sometimes we, we are successful at getting people into assisted living. It's a longer process yeah. for us. But, you know, for like things like most assisted living facilities require the patient to bring their own furniture. Yes. Right. And so like I've heard families talk all the time, like I have to find a bed for mom. Yes. And I'm like, okay, well, like, like a lift chair. Or exactly. Something. Right. Yeah. Step one, like we'll see what we can order medical equipment wise. But like you have to find all these things that are going to fit into a smaller space than where they are right. currently living. So I hear that all the time. Well, mom has a ton of furniture, but it's a queen size bed. It's not going to fit. Right. <laughs> that so it's often it's yeah and i mean for somebody to scramble to get that together within a few days is, yeah, is nearly impossible pretty for them. wild yeah yeah so uh do you have the conversation about hospice too i do yeah yeah and and, and so a lot of times so, so there's usually two contexts two two ways that that comes up either we see somebody come in with a devastating acute illness that we don't think that they're going to survive from yeah um and we start having conversations with you know, unfortunately, dad's really not doing well. We don't think that he's going to survive this despite all of our interventions. Yeah. And, you know, if, if we're not able to accomplish recovery, then maybe we should shift our gears and focus more on keeping him comfortable for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's really how we start introducing hospice. Sometimes we're consulting palliative care to help us have those conversations yeah. because they have a little more time and it's, it's obviously really complicated. Right. And some people are very surprised. Other people are definitely not. And you never really know what you're going to get. Yeah. I, I <laughs> um, found that too. I'd say that the other probably more common scenario is that, again, we've seen multiple hospitalizations for decompensated medical conditions that are mm -hmm. continuing to progressively worsen. 
and we're talking about the overall trajectory of the patient and that they're continuing to decline and clearly not making recovery meaningful enough to stay out of the hospital. And so do we, you, then we start talking about really what's the patient's goals. Yeah. Right. And so I often hear like, well, mom doesn't want to be in the hospital. I'm like, okay, well, let's examine like what that would look like to try to keep her out of the hospital and what layers of support we can offer. And something like hospice right. would be a great way avenue in order to do totally. that. Yeah. Cause we're focusing again on not prolonging life for making life as comfortable as possible for whatever mm -hmm. time is left. And it's, it's a very, when we start shifting gears and thinking that way, um, we can throw a lot more resources at the patient and, and really do a lot in the home environment to try yeah. to keep them there. So your base, is it fair to say when someone discharges, you are, if let's seniors specifically, you, they're probably going to discharge with something. So like hospice, home health, non-medical for bed management, sure. an assisted living, a nursing home, like there, something's probably going to be in addition to the hospital because the ultimate goal would then be to keep them out of the hospital. Correct. Right. Instead of like kind of a revolving door going back and forth. Exactly. Yeah. So families could potentially start looking at those, mm -hmm. calling all these companies. So then when it is ready and you say, hey, you need med management, they know who to call. Right. Or they need physical therapy, they already know who to call because exactly. you guys give a list. Correct. Yeah, usually usually what happens is the social worker will look at who's within their coverage for their insurance okay. um, and, and typically provide them with a list of options. And it's ultimately, according to Medicare guidelines, they're the family's choice yeah. to, you know, what home health agency you use, which mm -hmm. which skilled nursing facility you might go to. That's, yeah. that's all on the family to decide. Right. We are not allowed to tell you, you know, we prefer this organization over another. We can say like, I can, they, they'll ask me, they'll say like, do you have a preference? And I'm like, I don't, I discharge a lot of patients to people, to places all over the place. And right. so like, I don't really have anything, you know, to, to necessarily weigh in, but a lot of families want to know because they, they don't have any experience with it. So right. if, if you, you know, talk to your friends, talk to other people who have gone through, you know, working with different home health agencies or, um, mom had to go to rehab. Well, did, how was her experience there? Did you like it? Because all we're going to give you is the Medicare ratings, right? right. With with Which, that list. Right now with COVID are so outdated. <laughs> <laughs> so outdated. I mean. And I can't tell you, I mean, you know, there's people that go or come back to the hospital from rehab settings. And they're like, it was a nightmare. Don't ever send anybody there. Yeah. I, I can't assess that. And so like, that's more about patient experience. And, and I think knowing right. people who have been through that, if you have a sense of like, what you what you enjoy what the family you know like was it a good experience for them that that kind of word of mouth thing can be really valuable it can we yeah. often sometimes pre-covid people were able to go tour facilities yes i always recommend that <laughs> yes and um i think some facilities now are kind of getting back into that that yeah. swing of things but um i tell people to get online and read reviews yeah i mean i know reviews tend to be you know I feel like people leave reviews when they're really mad. <laughs> More people do that than when they're really happy. And so, but there's also some truth to it, you know, and they might say like the food was amazing and that might be really something that's important to you. So yeah. like, okay, great. Absolutely. And I think one of the things I always try to tell families is that the level of care that we offer in the hospital is never going to be replicated in a facility. Yes. Because we have significantly more resources to throw at a patient in a, a hospital setting, which is why it costs a lot more money to be in the hospital, right? right? And and so I always try to prepare that transition that there is not always a nurse like present and there might be one nurse for the entire building. Right. Right. And so there's not always somebody that's going to be 
it, it, like as very attended to your family member as as you know our nursing staff is here because right. we have so many the the patient ratios are much lower things like that mm -hmm. so it, it is a challenge and it, it is it a is. change yeah um but i think it depends if that's what you're using to accomplish your goals for like increased mobility or something like that then um then you know then we have to just sort of accept some of those sacrifices. Yeah, if you need like heavy nursing or a ton of therapy, it's definitely a, a place to go. Yeah, we've actually had recent pushes um, for patients. So essentially when physical therapy works with them, they give them a uh, ambulatory mobility assessment okay. score. Yeah. Um, and based upon that score, we can kind of determine, you know, if somebody really needs to be in a rehab setting or even if they might qualify for rehab, are they potentially on the borderline of going home? Oh, okay. And so that's one big push that we've looked at recently is to try to get more patients back into the home environment because we actually see that there are better outcomes Really? For those patients, um, by returning home, than if they go to rehab. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you think just because they're home and like in their comfortable environment? I think so. And then you know, if we're if we're promoting mobility, um, then we can oftentimes accomplish that with home health. Um, yeah. And we sometimes we see patients go to skilled nursing facilities for rehab, and they don't make any progress. Yeah. They they leave at the same functional uh, baseline that they were when they arrived. And, and so, you know, that then maybe in those situations, there is no rehab potential for that patient, that right. they've, they've reached a point in decline of their function. And so that's sort of what they're stuck with. And if we can identify those situations earlier and maybe create the home environment able to better care for them, mm -hmm. then um, that would that would be more preferred, I think, in the long term for yeah. them. And most people I mean, are much sense. happier about that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, each patient's very different, but looking at, you know, each patient as each patient and what's yeah. going on with them. That makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of it's what kind of support do they have at home? So true. Right. Yes. Like, I, I mean, are we talking about hiring private duty nursing to come in and help manage them? And what does right. that cost look like? Or can, how can much, tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> or how, how much is the family able to actually yeah. be present there to, to deliver that care themselves? So yeah. or are there a ton of steps? Is the bathroom on the correct only bathroom is on the second floor. Right. We hear that from time to time. Yes. I hear that as well. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's take another quick break and then okay. we'll come back with a couple questions. If you find yourself in the hospital in a situation where you're not sure where to go upon discharge, call Senior Transition Experts at 614-947-3611. They can help you with finding a home care company and assisted living. They can help with care management, really whatever you need. So give them a call if you don't know what to do upon discharge. Okay, we have two questions from our listeners. Okay. In reviewing these, these are good questions. <laughs> I'm sure you hear this all the time. Yeah. So, my mother-in-law has been in the hospital three times in three weeks. How do we make that stop? <laughs> it's a fantastic question. I definitely <laughs> hear this a lot um, from, from families. And, and sort of what I described earlier, we're looking at the overall trajectory of the patient, right? Mm -hmm. What is driving those admissions? I think is is number one the, the question is it is it recurrent decompensation of a chronic medical condition or is it that they just can't care for themselves at home yeah right and so i think we look at that and then we have to understand what the patient's goals are and and this is really where palliative conversations come into play mm -hmm. understanding what the patient wants to to get out of life in general right and then how right. can we make sure that their medical conditions are managed to a point where we can accomplish that mm -hmm. um and or do we need to paint reality that potentially we can't accomplish that? Um, and so it, I think it's really determining 
what what the reason they're coming in the hospital for and are we actually accomplishing things by hospitalizing the patient yeah is it like the same thing each time or is it like something new each Correct. time right and and are we able to just give a temporary fix or what what chronic medication management should we change in order to make their COPD better or right. you know how often should we increase their frequency of visits to the cardiologist's office because their heart failure mm -hmm. um, continues to decompensate or you know do we need to meet with a dietitian to manage their diet better so those yeah. are those are some of the things that we look at and I think every patient's going to be completely different when it comes mm -hmm. to that scenario but um, and, and it's sort of I, I think I, I my job to paint the picture of you know what's actually happening physically with someone um, and if they are approaching a, a rapid decline to, to make that honest assessment to the family mm -hmm. and say like listen I really don't think that they're doing well and I think that they're nearing the end of their life and we often talk yeah. about death in the hospital and it's scary for families oh, I bet. Um, and and a lot of people really struggle with that mm -hmm. but at the same time I think sometimes hearing what we're saying you, you know families will say like yeah I think I've I think I've been thinking about yeah. that for a long time, but I nobody ever really voiced it. And, and and I think when it comes from a physician like you, it's like, oh, okay. I just needed to hear it from you know a physician. Yeah. As opposed to you know maybe other, you know, ancillary healthcare professionals that they're talking with. Absolutely. And yeah, right. Sometimes it's it is, or sometimes it's talking to their own personal physician. You know, um, a lot of people they build relationships longitudinally with with their doctors, right? Mm -hmm. And and I'm just coming in as the the, the hitman, right, to try to, to deal with the acute issue, and like right. I could I could seriously drop some bombs on people in a very yeah. short amount of time, but um, at the same time, I want them to feel comfortable and and really have a comprehensive understanding of what I'm seeing through my perspective. Right. And and sometimes we don't always arrive at a conclusion. It it may mean that like I want to talk more with my family. I want to talk more with other providers in their life and get their opinion. And I, that's fine. I'm, I'm, yeah. my job is to meet the family and the patient where they are and try to help them as best as I can to make them successful to accomplish those goals that they want to accomplish. That's a great outlook. <laughs> not every physician has that outlook. I think that's what's something so special about you is that Aww. you are able to, you, you communicate it so well Thank you. and you do such a nice job of kind of realizing like, what situation the family and the patient are in. Yeah. And I don't know that that's always taken into consideration. Yeah. You do a really nice job of that. I often tell people tell that, you. thank you. Mm -hmm. I often tell people that um, I, I got the doctorate in social work that I never went to school for. Yes, so true. <laughs> because I think at the end of the day, the medicine yeah. is easy for me. That, that's the easy part of it. It's the everything else that goes on in life that makes it complicated, yeah. right? And it's the social situations, the the living environments, things like that, that I have absolutely no control over, but I'm trying right. to help families navigate that. And it's it's terrifying yeah. for, for them. And I've, I've learned a lot. My social work colleagues have taught me so much over the years. Oh. I mean, to make my job social successful. Social workers are invaluable. <laughs> they, they're, well, they're undervalued and underpaid <laughs> <laughs> for what we they could, do. We could do a whole nother episode on that too. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Uh, so your advice to that family or to the daughter-in-law um, would be tell the hospitalist or tell the physician what your goal is. If your goal yeah. is to make that stop, her going in and out of the hospital, tell them that. Correct. Have open and honest feedback, but then also realize you might be hearing some stuff you know, as feedback that might be hard to hear. Yeah. But if that's your ultimate goal, share that ultimate goal with people. And, and I think letting us try to help navigate that right for yeah. you because like we know the ins and outs of of the discharge planning world and right. and healthcare and how we can support your family and some people are often shocked to find out what we can offer to accomplish those goals and yeah. so like when when you explain that to some people they're like 
wow, it's like a huge relief that I'm like, we are all in this together. I, my goal is just to make sure that that patient is healthy and happy and, and living their like best life. Yeah. That's, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Okay. So my dad is aging, living at home. What can I do to be prepared in case something happens? Hmm. Yeah. Proactive. Getting that folder, huh? <laughs> Getting that folder out. Right. Right. Um, I think one of the, the key things that I, I'm a big proponent of like life alert type pendants. Oh, really? For, okay. For people who are living independently. Now, it only works if they wear it. I've, yes, I've, so I've, true. I've had patients that are like, you know, they fell, they couldn't get off the floor or something like that happens. And I'm like, do you have a, do you have a life alert type button? And they're like, yeah, I have one. I'm like, okay, were you wearing it? And they're like, nope, it was sitting no. in the charger. No. <laughs> all the time. Or it's like hanging on the bedpost. Right. I hear that all the right. time. Yeah, yeah, no, but it was hanging on the bedpost. Exactly. Or, you, you know, I mean, even cell phones, I think, are because some people set their phones down, right? So yeah. so a way to contact somebody to get help in, in an emergency, I, we see this happen a lot. And, and people come in the hospital with significant complications that probably could have been avoided if somebody mm-hmm. had been there sooner. And families can't be there 24-7. Right. We get that. We mm-hmm. totally understand. And and a lot of people do a great job of checking on their elderly parents. And a lot of people live far yeah, away. Like neighbors have neighbor stopovers. Exactly. So I think that those are, those things, I, I personally think, I, I try to get most older patients that are living alone to have something like that available. I just saw, not a, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I don't work for Apple, so this isn't a plug for them. But their new Apple Watch, you can set it where... If somebody falls, you'll know, and it'll mm. send an alert to whoever you put in your phone. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, ah. the, I mean, you still obviously have to wear sure. the watch, but if it detects that you fell, it, I think it was more used for, like, if you were hiking or you were active. You got it. But, you know, my mind goes to older adults. Yeah. I'm like, if somebody could wear a watch, and if they fall, it'll send an alert to whoever they have Absolutely. I think, so I think whatever you can do, I mean, I've seen... Some families, like, they put in cameras to, yeah. to help monitor mom, right? If, mm-hmm. Especially if, if we're trying to maintain independence but are really worried about safety. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes if you're worried about frequent falls, um, physical therapy at home can do really great home safety evaluations. Yeah, and I, I'm a huge proponent of those. Um, and just looking at trip hazards that you may mm-hmm. not even recognize that were there right. before. Right. Um, exactly. <laughs> Encouraging your family to use the mobility aids that they're supposed to be using. So yeah. I often hear like somebody's supposed to be using a walker and they're like, oh, well, I just wanted to go into the bathroom. I didn't need to use yes. the walker. I like all the time and then they fall and break their head. Like I, I that I've heard that story ad nauseum. And so yeah. y- encouraging them to like stay on top of that. Um, I, I really like pill counters and organizers. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also get pill packs from from most pharmacies. Um, in terms of delivery. So they will like actually pack the pills that like all their chronic medications and like this is the AM packet. This is the PM oh, packet. That's and nice. it has dates and stuff actually printed on them. So, okay. so that's an option that I've had, I've used, I've told people to use just so yeah. we don't miss doses. It's also really helpful to see like if you did miss doses, like you know when it happened. <laughs> so true. Yeah, like you're so missing like, all the morning doses, what's happening? Correct. So like what's going on there? And and so yeah. I, I recently had a patient where we were talking about maybe we should be in an assisted living type environment where they can monitor medication administration. Yeah. Um, since since there were a lot of missed medications and she had mm-hmm. breakthrough seizures. So Oh wow. Yeah, so it was like a serious complication from all of that. Right. Um so those are the, I mean those are like some like low hanging fruit kind of things, I think. Mm-hmm. And and then start planning for what if mom or dad can't live alone. What, yeah. what are we going to do in that situation? You know, are, are, is it capable for us to move them in with us? 
um, at home. <laughs> they just got big eyes. Like. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and it, you know, that, that's a daunting task. Yeah. And what does it look like to remove somebody's independence? Mm -hmm. Having con real conversations with them, yeah, like when so we're talking tough. about, you know, you can't drive anymore. What does that look like? And, and people right. hate that. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the toughest conversations. Absolutely. So I think, and, and I think the, the other thing is talking to your family about long-term goals. And, and we didn't bring it up much, you know, but we, we talk a lot about DNR statuses in the hospital. Yeah. And as people are declining and aging, we have to know, it's really important for us to know where do we draw the line, mm -hmm. right? And, and yeah. doing resuscitated measures like CPR and putting people on ventilators is not what a lot of people want in right. their lives. And when you explain it in great detail, they're like, no, I never, I don't want that. But okay. sometimes it's too late. By the mm -hmm. time they get to me, they've already been through that. Yeah. And so then we're having conversations about how do we withdraw care if that's not within their goals. Right. And and so knowing, having those conversations preemptively ahead of time with families about like, what are your wishes in the event that something catastrophic happens? Totally. Knowledge and, is power in those situations. And a lot of families will go back to living wills. And this is my only thing against living wills is that they're written by lawyers, not by doctors. Yeah. Living wills typically talk about a scenario where somebody is in a permanent vegetative state and deemed to not be recoverable by a physician. Mm -hmm. The number of times that that has happened, actually truly happened in my career is I could probably count on two hands. Really? So I think that the more likely scenario is, you know, they had a cardiac arrest event and now they are on a ventilator, but they are not quite a vegetable, quote right. unquote. Like they still have some function and we yeah. don't know what exactly they're gonna regain. But we're also looking at the long-term recovery and rehab and therapy and things that it would take to accomplish those goals and knowing that that person's never gonna come back to where they were before. Right. So Grey's Anatomy does a great job of, of showing people <laughs> bouncing right back from a cardiac arrest. <laughs> and the reality yeah. is that it does not happen that way. And, uh -huh. and it's often really terrifying and scary for the families and they really struggle with that. But having those conversations ahead of time it's just a simple way of, it, it's not making decisions, but at least you know what mom yeah, and dad's wishes are. Yeah, you know like, are. where they are. Correct. And what they want. And, and I've often heard children will say, you know, I don't want this for mom, but she always said that she did want it. Right. And so we have to navigate how that looks, mm -hmm. right? And, and so, or, or nobody ever talked about it. And they're like, I don't think they would want that, but I can't, don't feel comfortable making that decision. Right. So it, it creates really awkward dynamics that we have to I know, to I feel like navigate. a lot of like family guilt goes into it. Oh, and so much. So much that and, goes into those decisions. And when something catastrophic happens, usually there's some family member coming out of the woodwork like, Always. Nana wanted this. And I'm like, you haven't seen her in 20 years. How do you know what Nana wants, right? Like we hear that happen all the time and then they put pressure on their other families. So if yeah. you're preemptively talking about these things before they happen, it makes it's so much easier. everybody's lives so much easier. And, and if we can clearly define what those goals look like, then, then we know what to do and can support the patient and the family a lot mm -hmm. better. So Yeah, that's yeah. great advice. Well, I so appreciate <laughs> your time. Yeah. We have covered so much. I want to do like four more podcasts off of this. Anytime. I'm happy to come back. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much yeah. for being here. I really appreciate it. You shared so much with us. I know this is going to be beneficial to so many people. And I learned a lot. I'm going to go home and do all kinds of different things. <laughs> Definitely going to log into that portal for my yes. channel. <laughs> yes, yes, Get in the portal so we yeah, know what's happening. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, um, thank you again for yes. being here. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And um, thank you for listening. And I will leave you with you are doing a great job and you are not alone. Thanks for listening today. Bye.